Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to the podcast. We invite you to share the historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. Visit our website, michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to listen to past episodes and for bonus content. In this podcast, we're talking about HBO Max's Julia, inspired by Julia Child's extraordinary life and her long running public television series, The French Chef, which pioneered the modern cooking show. Through Julia's life and her singular joie de vivre, the story takes you behind the camera at a pivotal time in American history. With the emergence of public television as a new social institution, feminism and the women's movement, the nature of celebrity and America's cultural evolution. At its heart, the series is a portrait of a loving marriage with a shifting power dynamic as Paul Child is forced to retire from the Foreign Service and Julia Child's star rises following the publication of her signature cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Julia was created by Daniel Goldfarb, who produces The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. The eight episode series stars Sarah Lancashire as Julia Child, David Hyde Pierce as Paul Child, B.B. Newworth plays close friend and behind the scenes kitchen assistant, Avis Devoto, who in real life was Julia Child's unofficial literary agent. Brittany Bradford plays WGBH associate producer Alice Naiman, an African-American woman paving a career for herself in television by championing the French chef show. Julia, the series takes some creative license with Alice. Alice is a fictional character and a combination of people who worked at WGBH at that time, including real assistant producer, Ruth Lockwood, who was white, according to a recent Washington Post article by Emily Heil. Alice's story reflects the challenges of being a professional single woman and woman of color in the television field, which is dominated by white men. Other real life portrayals include Fran Kranz as Julia's television producer, Russ Morash, and Fiona Glasscott as Julia's editor, Judith Jones. Isabella Rossellini appears as Julia's cookbook collaborator, Simone Simka Beck, among other familiar faces from television and film, including Judith Light, James Cromwell, and others. Since this podcast looks at impacts of historical dramas, series, biopics, we're talking about Julia and Julia Child's legacy with Janet Cam. Janet is our go-to person for fine food and wine recommendations. Janet Cam was the co-founder of Le Pavillon, the first Nouvelle Cuisine restaurant in America. She is a recipient of the Wine Spectator's Grand Award and is included in Who's Who in American Restaurants. 
Janet appears on various media platforms and conducts in-person and online wine tastings. Janet also provides consulting services to restaurant and hospitality related businesses, leading a collaborative process to build profitable ventures from the ground up and redevelop existing businesses into fresh competitive operations. Her work with the local restaurant group has made them nominees for the 2022 James Beard Awards. Janet's virtual wine tastings have been a tremendous success during the pandemic. We'll talk a little bit more about that in our conversation. Welcome Janet to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Welcome Janet. And Thank a you. toast Thank to you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> well, we, we've all seen one or more episodes from this really delicious series, Julia. And I, I know the challenge for me is separating the series from my memories of Julia Child and her television show, The French Chef, and having worked at PBS at one time, you know, I was watching all of her shows before they went to broadcast, you know, that came up like um, Dinner at Julia's, Jacques Pepin, you know, with Julia Child. So in this, in this podcast, you know, we're probably combining a little bit of our fond memories of Ju Julia and impressions. So tell us what, what are your impressions of, the, of what you've seen from this HBO Max series? Oh, it's just a stunning um, piece of work. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've seen only a few of them, but what I like is really the take of their relationship together because I think um, oftentimes uh, success for a woman is really uh, the people behind you uh, who support your vision and where she went with this uh, was amazing. The way she found herself again. And um, you know, you provide for everyone else first as a female, usually, you know, especially in Chinese, it's your family and then it's your husband, and then it's your children, and maybe you come last, um, even if you realize that. So I think that this uh, film um, and the take on it is really beautiful. And I remember that time period in the 50s as well. So it's uh, pretty true to what my uh, recollection is of the period going forward. Tequina, you have any thoughts you want to add to that? Well, I have to say that for me, the series is as much about, um, I guess you're never too old to follow your dreams or to have a new dream. And um, I think for um, a woman in that time in particular, the expectation was in your fifties, life was pretty much over for you and you were kind of waiting just to die. <laughs> but this really shows that people always have um, aspirations and a, a need for finding a sense of purpose. And in the series, uh, Julia says specifically, she wants to be relevant. What was also interesting is how um, emotionally distraught she was uh, going through menopause, the realization. Yes. And in that time and place, it almost negates your femininity that she couldn't bring herself to share that with him until much later. And, and she I, was a tall woman. Yes. <laughs> and I know the area of Pasadena because I was raised um, in the adjoining area. So I have a fairly good idea of what that was like and um, the life that she led at that point. Um, and also to discover France, which I did through um, 
my husband at the time and a restaurant, which was French. And um, that sort of thing is really uh, codified and prescribed. And what she brought to this is um, you can do it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The yes. can do attitude that is so American. Um, and she proved it and she helped us with it. And she codified it in this book of just like follow the directions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love the way she says um, in the series, because she looks the way she looks, she's used to people saying no to her and she's used to not taking no for an answer too. Well, this so is true. Great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I came from the same thing from a, a different aspect is I was the eldest of um, children of a Chinese family and uh, everything was no, keep your head down and everything will be okay. And I didn't. <laughs> and um, what happened was in my time frame is uh, they didn't know what to do with you. So you made up your own rules. And that worked for me. Yeah. But um, I remember uh, watching her show and what it meant in its time and place. And uh, it was the first real feminist kind of um, foot in into the door. Um, and so I am incredibly grateful for that because it's from a known era. Food is a woman's area. And she expanded it for everyone. And yeah. she took it back from the male chefs. I yes. Mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> women own the kitchen. <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk about some of those memories that this series is sort of bringing up because um, I remember one of my favorite episodes was her Madeleine episode when she was reading from Marcel Proust, Swan's Way. I never heard Proust before. I didn't even know who Proust was, but through this cooking show that introduced me to Marcel Proust and of course, Madeleine's. Um, so, it inspired, you know, it inspired me to, um, to check that out. I haven't made her recipe yet, but nevertheless. Um, is there anything Julia Child inspired in you? What did you learn that you've applied to your own food career, even life? Um, you know, the first time um, I had an inner reaction with that, um, I had won a, a scholarship during high school and it was, um, you know, the district, um, and it was an internship at the LA County Art Museum. And I got into a discussion with a docent and she gave me, and she was from Pasadena, and she gave me Julia Child's recipe for souffle. And um, we didn't have, it was for strawberry souffle. And I remember how arduous it was because I hand sieved all of the strawberries. We did not have anything to sort of whip it into a froth and create the air. Yeah, and no poison just, art in those days. No yeah. such thing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even use, a, you know, one of those hand. Big <laughs> beaters. Yeah. Um, so that was the first experience and the perseverance and remembering how special that recipe was. And um I was just going through photographs and there was a group photograph with this woman and how she had introduced me to Julia Child. Um, so, you know, that was the first. And then uh, the second time with Julia, uh, I was invited to dinner 
And um, this was uh, one of the great wine collectors in LA. After I closed the restaurant, I went back home to be with family and to make sure my son had a sense of family. And um, I was invited and I said, well, I'm not certain. And he says, do you know who this is? It's Julia Child. I said, I know who Julia Child is. <laughs> you know, if I had a commitment, I, I don't say, oh, this is a better invitation. <laughs> but um, it turns out that it did. And so, um, they sat her to my right, so I sat to her left, and she's lovely, warm, and genuine. Um, we just had a lovely time together, and I think that these collectors weren't sure what to say to her because I was the one who really cooked, and I was from the business, um, so it was a great deal of fun. I had her to myself, essentially. Yeah. Do you remember what was served? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wow. just remember that, you know, she told me one of her favorite restaurants was... Uh, a taco stand in Santa Barbara called La Superica. I made a dash for La Superica. <laughs> she was like that because I always, whenever I was in San Francisco, I would always go to this little Vietnamese restaurant, carry out in the, I think it's in the Mission or the Tenderloin. I, I'm not sure. But uh, always when my coworkers, because we would gather for these annual things for a client of mine, um, they would say, oh, don't go there by yourself. Uh, because of where it was located. So I always had to gather people, hey, let's go to the Julia Chat where she used to go to, and they have great Vietnamese food. And you have to clear your, bust your own dishes and things like that. So um, I, I always paid a pilgrimage there in honor of Julia when I was- That's wonderful. You know, yeah. one of my favorite cocktails is hers. I learned it in reading a little bit about her some years ago and her favorite cocktail is um, a reverse martini. So it's five parts vermouth, which is really a fortified uh, wine, um, and one part gin. And I do it pink. I have a pink mm. gin. And it is delicious. <laughs> so I learned that from her, but I don't have her, um, her uh, love of um, uh, goldfish. She loved oh, goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer peanuts. <laughs> Yeah, I was reading about that and uh, Cherry Bomb Magazine did a special issue devoted to Julia Childs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So food does bring up memories um, in a sense it, it it does shape us. It shapes us, it shapes culture. And Michelle and I, and getting ready for this podcast, we're talking about some of the foods we grew up with and how our own palate has changed through exposure to like cooking shows and travel and restaurants. But we also remembered foods and cooking traditions we still enjoy um, because, you know, our both sides of our family have roots in Virginia. And so someone like an Edna Lewis, her cookbook is very reminiscent of the kinds of uh, foods that our families prepared. And her um, editor was Judith Jones. Yes, another Judith Jones um, uh, author. And we also noted how we're, we're going back to some of the things uh, like eating in season or um, cooking from scratch and uh, dishes associated with holidays and special occasions. So you, you mentioned where you grew up and growing up in a Chinese family. Uh, what was on your plate growing up that you still enjoy? And what have you added from your experiences as a restaurant owner and your travels in the world? So 
One of my favorite dishes was the dish grandmother made. And basically it's a, an aberration of a American food done her way. And um, she lived in a, uh, well, the, the whole family lived in um, a Victorian house in uh, Los Angeles, in close to downtown. And uh, that was the time they had streetcars. So there was a streetcar nearby. And um, she had a chicken coop in the back and uh, she was growing her own vegetables um, so that she could have Chinese vegetables. But the dish that I really loved that she made was um, a tomato curry beef noodle. So it's like a spaghetti side, it's noodle and um, it's fresh tomatoes and Chinese chives. And she caramelized in this uh, wok frying of the beef so that it had a, an Asian taste to an almost Italian kind of <laughs> dish and, and curry. So um, wow. that's what I remember um, as, as a really a favorite dish. And she knew I loved eggs. And so that was like another thing. And um, I've done my riff on that, that I have every morning, which is um, using uh, turmeric. So I have this little pot and it's the size of a barbecue sauce pot. And uh, it's turmeric, olive oil, which is good for the body and uh, black pepper to open up uh, the curcumin for healing uh, joint issues and um, a little bit of curry powder and then the egg and then over a breakfast salad. So mm. that's kind of a mm. riff on grandmother and taking that curry and, and doing it in a healing way. Sounds like your grandmother was doing some fusion cooking before fusion cooking became a thing. True, and she had to learn how to cook. Oh. Um, grandfather was, you know, said, oh, we're in America now. He came with his brother and they were merchants. And so in San Francisco, they opened up a market called Pond's Market. And um, the two families uh, were very different. Uh, grandfather left and brought his family down to uh, Los Angeles because he said there were too many hands in the till. And uh, the San Francisco uh, family side are very dramatic. Uh, one is um, a woman who had sung uh, male parts in Chinese opera. Another one was wow. uh, blondie, um, Chinese with the first blonde, uh, dyed hair. Um, another one had a restaurant at the wharf. And then all the family in the South were academics. So. My uncles were supposed to go back to China for classical education, but the war started. And so they were educated at USC and Berkeley. Wow. And uh, mother, grandmother had to learn how to cook. Grandfather said you could uh, unbind your feet now. She came with bound feet. Wow, oh, wow. Yeah, and then she had to learn how to cook. She, she came with her maid. And so all the daughters had to stand by the stove to learn how to cook, and I did the same. I had to learn how to do the rice. And uh, my sister loves to bake. I like to cook. Okay. That sounds like our division a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. But what's really interesting, I think, is um, how, how holidays transfer. So here's an immigrant family and uh, Thanksgiving was celebrated and uh, our family hosted that. So we did um, a Chinese stuffed rice normal roast turkey. Then there was a jello mold from the 50s <laughs> <laughs> that was green with uh, sour cream and uh, 
I think Del Monte's cocktail uh, fruit in it. And then there's green beans with uh, Campbell's uh, soup, mushroom soup. And then my first uh, Thanksgiving here in Washington, uh, when I was married, was at uh, a Japanese wine collector's home. His menu is exactly the same. Wow, really? <laughs> it was wild. It was wild. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here with a Life magazine that's full of recipes using Campbell's mushroom, cream of mushroom soup and Campbell's tomato soup. <laughs> yeah, still, still a classic. <laughs> yes. This is modern America at the time. Yeah, for sure. Now, Janet, how did you come to have a career in food? <laughs> I married a French chef. <laughs> what Not happened? the French chef, a French chef. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who looked like Elaine Delon <laughs> um, at the time. Um, what had happened was, um, as I said, I was a bottom rung executive for Levi Strauss. Uh, I was a designer. And uh, I was uh, in New York and um, I had an expense account. And um, a girlfriend was vice president of Sass on Jeans at the time and took me to a nightclub and introduced me to uh, Yannick, who was a friend of the owner of this nightclub, who was a French Harvard MBA. And so we met and um, that's how I got involved in the business. Um, he courted me out of um, San Francisco and New York. And so we were going to Chez Panisse and then we go to restaurants in New York. And um, I had a natural uh, palate for good food and wine. And I had my first real champagne at the time. What's the uh, real champagne when you mean? It was Don Renard. Oh. <laughs> yeah, not Lancers and nothing bubbly that's out of it, you know, but I had champagne for the first time. And uh, that, that started me on the road. And um, when we opened a restaurant, uh, there was uh, a day that um, a collector invited us over and there were 18 bottles of red wine lined up. And uh, all I had to tell was the difference between California or French, young or old. And uh, there were famous restaurateurs in the room uh, people who wrote about wine and the room was entirely male. And he said, you don't know anything, why don't you take a chance? And I did, and I was the only one who got entirely right, not knowing anything. And it's the nose. And I think for women, um, maybe it's genetically encoded because we protect the children and the tribe. Mm. That's my guess. That's <laughs> an interesting theory, yeah. Do you have any uh, favorite French dishes? Oh. Oh my gosh, you know, um, it would be canals. And that's yeah. because it's about technique. It's not anything I would make. Mm -hmm. um, but to have a really good one when they're ethereal and they're light, it's just an amazing dish. Who has so the that, best? Yeah. Who has the best? <laughs> or, or am I I'm putting you on the spot? Um, outside of my ex-husband who did it twice because that's a classical dish. Um, I haven't tasted anyone else's that I would claim was as good, if not better. All right. Well, what wines would go with that dish? With cannels? Mm -hmm. Oh, God, a great white burgundy. <laughs> Probably a Mirceau, depending on the sauce. If it's like a, a lobster sauce or if it's a Fleur Blanc or something of that nature, but it would be white burgundy, All right. which Take is basically a Chardonnay. <laughs> 
You know, it's interesting. When I go to a French restaurant, I always, for the first time, order the roast chicken. That's my test to see if this is really going to be a good restaurant to- You're absolutely correct. To return it's, to. Yeah, it's, um, it's what's simple that reveals technique in, in that way in the roast chicken. I agree with you. But, you know, if you um, go to the Smithsonian and you look at how Julia Child roasted her chicken, it was on a spit. And with all that butter and that Ooh. classical aspect of him, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, delicious. And then, you know, <laughs> you know what's, what's interesting is how you, you were introduced to the food industry through your husband, a French chef. And in some ways that mirrors Julia's story because she got interested in French cooking because she was with her husband who was assigned in France, France. Yeah. as she started going to the cooking classes. Um, so, you know, sometimes you just never know where people will lead you. Well, what had happened was um, it was my first time in Europe and we're in France and uh, we're in the Michelin star restaurants. And um, he described everything to me in the sense from a one star to a three star. So the one star is essentially for food that's worth a stop. The second star is someone who's really talented and it's a nice interior. And the third star is usually that you put a mill into it, a million dollars in terms of everything is monogram and it's very grand. And you know, how, how beautiful that can be. That's uh, as someone who does a multi-course menu. This is uh, when that first started. And uh, so we were tasting, um, you know, restaurants like, like La Castrat and you know, Forgeron, a, a number of these. And it's the multi-course menus and how it builds as a symphony and the technique and how you begin with certain dishes and end with certain dishes. And so I learned a lot. And uh, I am incredibly grateful for that opportunity because it opened up the world. Watch. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This next question, um, talks about Julia Child building a brand. When she came to WGBH and the cooking show was launched in 1963. So she's building this brand and she is an, essentially an entrepreneur in this television space. But we also see a lot of resistance and the naysayers to this cooking show and in this series and probably in real life and um, there's the resistance to something new at this, this WGBH station. And even Julia realized she was taking a risk. Now you were building something new with your restaurant as well and introducing Americans to something new, new to the palate. What did you have to do to overcome the resistance and the doubts and what was at risk? This is huge. This is Washington, DC in the late 70s, where it, it still is steak, you know, um, because we have a, um, not only international, but the bulk of um, the diners on expense account, because uh, we were just a luxury restaurant at that point, that was changing um, what a luxury restaurant was and what French food was. And so you have people who come in from the Midwest and, you know, they're saying, 
who do you think you are with this baby food, with these purees? And uh, Unique did not want to cook beef. I said, you cannot be in the capital of the United States and not cook beef. So we had to fight that one. Um, I fought that one and, and got him to change around. And then you have to allow someone their creativity. So we were doing a, a gratin of sea urchin. And this is really early on. And we had an international clientele. And then he wanted to do unborn baby eels that look like little like noodles with a little black eye. So I would call up um, people who were like from the Spanish embassy or the Japanese embassy and leave it on the menu because there was only so much we bought a limited amount. And then people who were you know, wondering about this said, oh, I'm so sorry, it's sold out because indeed I pre-sold it. So in terms of Julia having to do something to get to what she wanted to do, I did the same. And um, there was uh, in fact so much resistance to Nouvelle Cuisine from the classical that uh, th there was a moment that we went to some event and there were all these chefs clustered about, you know, saying how bad Nouvelle Cuisine was and they didn't know what we looked like. And so we're there listening. And then, you know, someone said, oh, who are you? And then we introduced ourselves and then you saw the look on their faces. And then there was uh, one very famous chef and this, we had shared a supplier and we were in the Brandywine area of Pennsylvania. And she, Mrs. Street grew beautiful herbs and salads and they were shipped to you UPS with little ribbons on them. And so she gave a reception during Bastille Day. And there's a very famous chef from, um, oh God, uh, Boston, I think it was. No, Philadelphia, it was Philadelphia. And it came to almost a fist fight. He was so against Nouvelle Cuisine. And years later, um, I, I went to the restaurant and he had shifted his cooking to Nouvelle Cuisine from classical. Yeah, um, I think that what happens in, in any situation when there's something new and unknown, people are resistant to change. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So you can see that with Julia in the perseverance and you know, having to believe in yourself and to persuade other people by the doing of it, um, I think it's very important. And so I learned you know, perseverance from her and to persevere for what I wanted to do because it's my life to live and you're not living it for your family, which is a, a Chinese mode. You live for your family and not for yourself. Yeah, uh, one thing about even in the cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, they're not the easiest recipes, but there's this sense of accomplishment you have. Oh yes, <laughs> when you get the through steps. it. It's true, <laughs> it's really true. And to make a proper sauce and to have all the components you know, the gloss, the reductions, and to do them properly. Um, the result is fantastic when you get to the end. <laughs> now, one thing we do like about the Julia series is how it shows um, what Americans were eating at the time that her television show launched in contrast to what we see Julia cooking on the show and at home. And there's a moment in Julia when her husband, Paul says, you're teaching America how to taste. We've talked a little bit about what Americans were eating in 1963. And you say you have memories. Tell <laughs> us a little more, but um, I guess Julia was eating it too when you said the goldfish. 
yeah, Pepperidge Farm goldfish. I mean, that's our weakness. Um, what was coming up at the time was, oh, all the modern conveniences for the housewife, right? Yeah. Um, so you're talking about TV dinners. You're talking about Swanson's. You're talking about Campbell's soup. But, you know, um, my grandfather uh, on my father's side, the paternal grandfather, um, came to America, you know, from Canton, um, you know, to earn a better living and to send money back. And what he started was um, wholesale produce. And then my father took over the wholesale produce business. And he was the first to service um, a gourmet restaurant. And that was uh, Santa Stuff in Manhattan Beach. And uh, that chef, um, in fact, just recently retired who moved to New Mexico. So came by on that way, um, remembering um, the first kiwi fruit. So here's this little green thing that was furry and kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, prickly and was sitting on the middle of the kitchen table. We're all looking at it and like, how do you eat that? And so, um, you know, we had really fresh food and Chinese food is what was cooked often. And then on the weekends, we went to an Italian restaurant or a French restaurant that was on La Cienega Restaurant Row. Um, so our, our experience was a little different unless we were really shopping for it. Um, and my parents used the, the convenience. Uh, lunch was typically like, um, oh, elbow macaroni. Yeah. Uh, and you could put hot dogs in it, you know, boil the yep. hot dog, slice it up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then you could do a can of chili or, you know, there it is. You could do the, uh, you know, the mushroom, cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> and that was and quick, quick lunch. That was tuna casserole. And the tuna casserole. Soup. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes a good casserole can get you through the week, though. <laughs> oh, that's the good thing. The reheat. Yeah. The reheat. Yeah. Yeah. And reinvention. Some... Oh, you know, to talk about Coco Van. So um, I do. You want to skip to the Coco Van? Coco Van? <laughs> I have made it from scratch, the red wine version. And then, um, in fact, a month ago, I did the white wine version. And uh, recent, yeah, there's a uh, white wine, Coco Van. Oh, tell more. Um, it's with the aromatics and you use white wine. You have the mushrooms, you have a bay leaf, you have thyme, um, you have pearl onions. It's delicious. It's lighter in style. And quite frankly, the wine's less expensive to use um, than the red wine version. Um, but what was also fun when you talk about, you know, making food last the rest of the week, I was... Uh, God, at a, a trade event. And so my partner was left to fend for himself. So he had um, ordered uh, the chicken dinner from Monami Gabi. And it's roast chicken that is basically a coco van. It had the everything in it. And uh, then there were green beans that were plain. And then uh, these uh, cuts of potato that was done with uh, pepper. So I reinvented the whole meal for the second and third time after that. And that's making a mushroom sauce from scratch, going to the farmer's market and eliminating the burn manet, which is uh, the flour and butter together to thicken. Um, that's from the classical in modern times. I don't want that calorie level. I don't mind putting in the butter, but not the flour too. And so I, I just kind of reduced it, just kind of mm. left it on a boil to reduce. and. 
you know, if it's a little soupier, I didn't mind, but I didn't really want to have it really heavy. So yeah, it's reinventing. So I was just going to ask, um, since you've been talking about the classical, Nouvelle Cuisine, um, variations on the theme of Coco Vin, um, what were the traditions in the regions that Julia was cooking from? Um, Julia is basically the evolution of classical. Okay. It's classical cuisine, and this is um, Escoffier. This is codified. This is um, the cuisine that uh, was adopted in France after Nouvelle Cuisine. Nouvelle Cuisine was the original uh, food of France and is taking the freshest produce and enhancing it. And, um, you know, after they had a number of wars, right? The Napoleonic, all of this. And so they, um, a lot of the wealth uh, was lost. And so the chefs, they got, um, I think there were some Spanish chefs that people hired and they brought with them a different style of cooking. And um, I think that what happens is uh, when, uh, you know, your food source is disrupted um, and, how the food gets to market. Sometimes it's not at peak. So what you do is you create sauces to cover an inferior quality and ah, to still make it delicious. Yeah. And then you start to do all the fancy, the piece monte, the flambe, the showtime to distract from maybe what would have been a beautiful product on its own. Yeah, and so you have food reflecting what's going on in the culture, what's happening. Exactly. Exactly. That is so fascinating. It's almost like, you know, Virginia cooking, which we grew up with, is all about the natural flavor. I mean, just the flavor of the food itself. From the yeah. garden. Down yes. the garden. And so, you know, like wine is terroir. The, the carrot's going to taste different in that soil than, you know, from somewhere else. And that's the same thing in France. If you brought carrots or fruits from France and compared them to the fruits here, it would be very different. Uh, blood oranges here as compared to Italy, which is the first time I had it, um, are different. Well, pears in Italy, I remember uh, growing up with very hard, tasteless pears. Mm. And I went to Italy um, and I was in Bologna and I was offered a pear. And I was thinking, eh, pear, but I, it was the juiciest sweetest. I mean, the juices were just running down my chin. And I thought, this is what a pear tastes like. So, um, you know, I think as American food has also gotten more into um, quality versus, you know, Honestly. shelf life. <laughs> and Yeah, and shelf yeah. life. We, we actually do have some great food here. More and more. And um you know, also exploring uh, the food of other cultures and their vegetables. Yes. Um, I think um, really grateful for this time frame and to be in a major city where so many things are coming here and chefs experimenting and, uh, you know, new items being published in magazines and like, oh, where am I going to find this? Um, recently, I read about firefly squid. And that heralds uh, the spring in Japan. So I called up one of my um, Japanese chef buddies. He says, well, that's an acquired taste. You eat uh, everything except the beak of the, of the squid. And I said, okay, so are you bringing anything in? <laughs> he says, 
no. I said, okay, I have to keep looking here. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting too that even our supermarkets now have much more variety. And in the series, we see Julia being very conscious of the fact that most of the women who'd be watching her show would be shopping from the supermarket and not Savinor's, which is the butcher market in Cambridge and in Boston, you know, that has all the fine cuts of meat and imported, you know, ingredients, et cetera. I love that scene where she's eating oysters. Yes. yes. I mean, she enjoyed her food and then the whole lobster came and she, she knows how to eat a lobster. She knows how to eat food that you have to take apart. Yeah. And she's used to food that has a head and a tail. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, I was thinking of um, how, w- when you were saying the first time you really tasted something, I'll never forget the first time I really tasted an apple. When we were growing up, always they gave us those, what were they, red? Mealy, mealy, red, red, delicious, had no taste. I did not like apples. I used to like Granny Smith's because they had a flavor to them, the tartness. That was the only way. And then I went to New York as a young adult, went to a fruit stand, bought an apple because I was hungry. And I was like, okay, here we go, eat an apple. Bit into it. And I guess it was local, locally grown. And my whole world changed. (laughs) Was it also one of the Korean like uh, markets that are on the corner? It could have been, I can't remember who owned it. I just remember the apple and just, it's like that, you know, hallelujah moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a revelation. Yeah. And that's what I like about Julia is seeing her enjoy the food, not just eat, but really enjoy it. And I think that gives us a sense of life. And, and again, the joie de vivre. Yes. But let's get back to the cacova, <laughs> which is episode two. Of Julia, each episode is titled for a dish just like the French chef was. So um, I don't know if you ever read my um, blog post from 2009 called the $200 Cacovin. No, tell me about it. <laughs> it's one of my it was one of my most popular blog posts for eclectic916.com. If anyone wants to look it up, but um, it was for it was for our favorite chef's potluck. Um, you came later, Janet. This was the first one that oh, okay. we had on Julia Child's birthday in August. And after seeing Julie and Julia, the one, the movie with Meryl Streep as Julia Child and Stanley Tucci as um, Paul. So the reason why it's called the $200 Coco Van is because I had to buy the pot. <laughs> the cast iron enamel coated pot. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, oh yes. Expensive equipment. <laughs> yes. And I had to take one back that I bought at first because it wasn't big enough. So I had to go back and um, I did find one at Bed Bath and Beyond that did the trick and, um, you know, pulled it all together, pulled it all some kind of way. And, you know, I'll rule with the favorite chef's potluck. Don't criticize the cooking, you know, just eat and enjoy, pour the wine, have a good time. What is the origin of Cacovan? And um, you've talked about making it yourself. So I use Um, the red wine. 
you remember what wine you used? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> what I could afford after the pot. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, uh, I think that this came um, from uh, Gaul um, during Caesar's time is how they said this. And what it is, is, you know, you take uh, an old uh, rooster and this is a rustic dish and um, it's put into the pot and um, you cook it until it's tender and you have all the aromatics in there to make it flavorful. So I think that it was first recorded somewhere around the 1800s, but it was said that it came from a much earlier part of time. And the original wine that you put in there is Burgundy, which is um, <laughs> top of the pyramid of wines now. <laughs> oh, it is the real thing is very, very expensive because unlike Bordeaux, Burgundy is one parcel of land and you cannot blend it with other wines. It's exactly what it is. So um, Burgundy's Pinot Noir grape. And it does make a difference where it comes from. So um, to do something that's maybe more affordable, Beaujolais, which is a, the Gamay grape, which will give you a very bright fruit taste to it. But the original is probably something like um, a Gevry Chambertin or something that has more earthiness to the flavor. And in fact, um, my favorite wine to, to drink with uh, a Coco Vin is really uh, a Volnay. So these are specific areas in Burgundy that make a sort of wine that has um, a certain character that I'm very fond of. So and just given as an inflation, op- it might be a $500. Yes, it's a $500 cup of vin. Yeah. I do have a little question, just a technical question about the cocoa vin. Does the wine kind of cook the chicken a little bit? It just by itself. I just felt that in some ways the chicken not only heat, but just the wine itself kind of really changed. Like tenderize? Tenderize, yeah. Yeah, Tenderize, yeah. Um, Alcohol will tenderize, you know, and that's why they use, uh, that dish was created, I think, because, you know, the the rooster's basically (laughs) post-peak. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like Julia and Paul in the series, right? (laughs) And so you reinvent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's delicious. <laughs> oh, I think that leads right into the next question. <laughs> yeah. So um, the first episode is called Omelette. And it's, it's really fun because we see Julia just be Julia. And that's what kind of gives uh, some of the idea that maybe she could have a show, but because she prepares an omelet on a, a program that's basically about books, you know, and, and authors. Um, and that's, you know, hosted by a university professor. So in omelet, uh, what we hear Julia say to her um, editor, Judith Jones, is I don't want to feel invisible. I want to feel relevant. I want to be relevant. And so um, the series is also about starting over. 
um, in a society where people 50 plus face ageism in many different ways and limited opportunities, but still are, you know, have a, a desire for a sense of purpose and relevance. So um, what um, do you see about this series, which actually is about a woman in her 50s in the 1960s, what it has to say about those of us in a similar uh, life mode today? Um, you know, I can really relate to that. And I've always worked from a place of passion uh, for what I do. And I think um, that is evident to people that when you have a passion for something that that transcends time and place and is about attitude. And uh, if you look at even some of the actresses who are older, you know, it's a finely honed craft. Um, you look at Meryl Streep, you look at Jane Fonda and they're juicy um, and they're true to who they are and what they do and they know what their high cards are. And so um, for me in this business, I know that uh, there's a lot of people up and coming and I, I offer to mentor people. And in fact, I'm also doing this with Georgetown University. But last night I was at a dinner and um, this was a, oh gosh, a burgundy wine dinner at Marcel's. And um, Robert Wiedenmeyer was so generous to say that I am the first to hire a woman um, chef de cuisine. So she heads the kitchen. And um, the, the tasting menu was lovely. And uh, there was one particular dish that she just really nailed. And it was a red Chassagne Monarche. That wine is usually known as a white wine, but historically it's red. And that uh, Albert Bichot um, is bringing this wine forward was just amazing. So I asked to speak with her after the dinner. And, um, you know, I said to her, you know, how the pairings were done and how great they are. And she was only 30, she's only 30. And that's young yeah. uh, for a woman heading the kitchen. And uh, I am just thrilled for her. And I gave her my card. And I said, if there's anything I can help you with um, about learning more technique or sauces, I know people and maybe you want to, you know, learn different techniques. Um, you know, I'm here to help you. Yeah. I just want to see that all come up and blossom. Yeah, and we see that in the series too. We see Julia has an impact with young housewives and you know her the passion she has for teaching mm -hmm. and 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 bringing her um, her passion and her skills to others um, is something that I find very moving about this this series. You know, it's so perfect because she, um, the French mentality is very different than American. And um, also at the same time, the French will trust themselves on their palate because they were raised with that. And so now we're bringing in generations of children and people in America who now are learning to build their library in their head and their palate and to trust your own taste. And that in itself is American. It's like, you know, Let's get up and do it and, and trust yourself that you can get it done. And she really transitioned that. And um, she did it brilliantly. Yeah. <laughs> People Another, have vision, you know, uh, yes. always hit the wall. 
Yeah. And then you push through the wall. Yeah. Do you and think Julia was the one that got us on the quiche thing? Oh, yes. God, wasn't everybody making quiche? <laughs> yes. I know some people who are still making it. <laughs> and I used to use her crust for pies, but it doesn't work as well for pies. It's a little too um, dense or something. I give you credit for making your own pie crust. I just went to I the freezer at, at the supermarket and bought the crust, but I would buy good cheese. <laughs> yeah, but I, my first quiche was from her cookbook. Oh, yeah. amazing. The other um, piece that I find very um, a strong connection with is the relationships in the series and also, it's great to see that Paul and Julia still have romance, still have sexual attraction, um, and st still are very much alive. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, that, the way you see their relationship in that, in that film and what it says about mature love? I'm glad that they showed it. Um, yes because it's always existed, but you know, uh, America and its youth of the 60s and free love, and it's always concentrating on the youth, but um, mature love is a different thing altogether. And because we all know our bodies better and we know what we want and what pleases us and their affection was just beautiful to see and that they could outwardly show it because you know, generationally, um, that was pretty forward. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because uh, much of America was pretty tapped down. And if you watched uh, Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best, there were, there were twin beds. You know, yes. Separated Even Lucy. by a nightstand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hardly real, but, you know, um, it's a good thing we have Americans here. <laughs> There's procreation. <laughs> So in that sense, it's French. Yes. In their yeah. openness, it's European and the open affection between the two of them. I'm glad that it's brought to you know, the screen. It's yeah. really lovely. Yeah. And uh, also um, some of the relationships at work and trying to find your role there and being invisible and not getting credit for your ideas. I think that's something the series, that series and actually um, being the Ricardos about the making of the I Love Lucy show. I know I'm crossing um, streaming platforms here, which is on Amazon, but I'm really enjoying these behind the scenes looks at, looks at how television is made and all the dynamics in terms of the work relationship between the key players, um, this is a great history, uh, Julia, that is, of what public television and public media looked like when she was starting out in television and how it's evolved from that, from the wingback chair and the, and the pipe um, to, you know, as she kept saying during the show, this is a, an educational cooking show. You know, that's, that's what the character Julia says, how she describes her show. So um, how do you see especially from those days, how those dynamics of women in restaurants or women, you know, the chef you just mentioned have evolved over the, over the years and the relationships and well, the women power. In a, 
Yeah, women in workplaces that are dominated by men. Yeah, um, you know, what I mentioned is uh, I was a bottom rung executive at Levi Strauss because they didn't know what to do with the designers. So they had an outside firm come in and to look at everyone's job and decide where you were. So we were at the bottom, which was fine. At least we were recognized, you know, <laughs> because that's a driving force inside the design that's going to be the sale. And your neck was on the line every three months, whether it's sold or not. And there was a, how should I say, a motto among everyone is covering the asses of the masses. And uh, so you really had to look at the market and distill the market for that. So in food, um, I was one of the first uh, most visible in terms of being um, female and a minority at the front of a, a luxury restaurant. And I really ran the dining room as uh, in quote a maitre d', which is what they call them. And I created a different style that worked for the food because the food was new. We had to have a different style of service and also to be less intrusive. Um, I tend to uh, run the service almost by eye contact and hand. So like a conductor in a symphony because the food was important and the guests at the table with the guests among themselves and their conversation was the priority. We were just sort of a, a support system or if someone allowed us to create the journey and to have a conversation, we needed to be invited to do that. So, um, you know, people were confused. They thought the chef was going to be Vietnamese <laughs> because they saw me at the front. And then there were comments uh, like, uh, my you speak good English. Mm. Yes. And so you have to think that's their problem, not mine. And I remember that person distinctly. It was a lobbyist. And so when we were on the cover of Washingtonian Magazine, he was bringing in clients and he wanted my attention at his table to let his client know that he was known. And somehow I find a little place that's like Siberia that I could just walk by and not ever acknowledge him. And so, you know, that's the long story about how that works. Yeah. You know, they get the service, they get the food, they get everything, but no, you don't get my attention. Yeah. And everything yeah. will be fine. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of the glass ceiling, but um, to change platforms again, I recently, in fact, a few days ago, read an opinion section about women and um, interruption in speaking. Mm. And uh, my son had accused me of that because I had learned how to do that to interrupt to, you know, because I always dealt with men. And there is a woman who, um, I think she's now, she was at USC who wrote a book and I think she's now on the East Coast. But um, this uh, opinion section was about women interrupting, but in support of each other. Yeah. So instead of interrupting to change it or to take credit for it, they would say, oh, that's a really great story about the cell phone. And then they would talk beforehand on the strategy of how they do that to support each other. And I think that's where we are now with women supporting each other yeah. instead of, you know, knife in the back in the memo, like, let's get rid of this one so I can move up, you know, it's support together. And yeah. I think Julie was part of that. Yeah. And you see a lot of support in her friendships and how the women uh, come to even come to the station to help her with her pilot and, and they're there for her. So I'm going to talk a little bit about 
um, the favorite chefs group, um, which I wish we could bring back, uh, but those potlucks where we would take a book like Mastering the Art of French Cooking, or um, I think we also did um, uh, Edna Lewis, Taste of Country Cooking, and we did one, I think, with- um, Alexander Dumas. Yeah, yes. Alexander Dumas. And did we do <laughs> Diana salad? Kennedy? Yeah, we did Diana Kennedy. Um, yeah, Mexican. But the thing I remember, and, and this is something they even opened the series with, the long tables with people gathered around with good food, good drink, wine, and good conversation. Um, and, and Julia was, you know, we, she definitely was a person who showed that mistakes are okay. I mean, she didn't have like the prettiest outcomes to her dishes, or she might drop something or something might not go well, but it really was about that whole joie de vivre. So could you talk a little bit about how you create that kind of, um, energy around food, sharing food and, and around the table? First of all, I'd like to say is no matter what the food is, whether it's care or whatever, to be invited to someone's table, it's a great gift. And um, it reveals a lot about the hostess or the host and also paying attention to the guest. Um, what I am very aware of is how lucky I am because I didn't get to see Julia's show until the 70s. And that's because I was just studying and I was just fast tracking on the career I wanted. And I knew at five years old, I wanted to be a fashion designer. And so what I am grateful for now is that I have time to sit at the table and have a real conversation. When you're in the restaurant business, you serve everyone else and make for that platform works for them because that's why they're there is to enjoy themselves. They're, you're not part of their table. Um, and so you make sure that everything is right for that opportunity. And so I tend to entertain a lot um, because there's people I wanna see, there's conversations I wanna have. And then there's a way to honor people. If you know someone has a favorite food or there's an allergy, um, I cook Chinese New Year's every year and that's 10 people and 10 courses. It's the food of my grandmother and my mother and it's a Cantonese banquet. And, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese use a lot of pork. So I have some Jewish friends. And so if I've done the stuffed rice for this duck, I'll do a separate rice for him. Um, and it's my pleasure to do that. And how do I get flavor into it if I'm not using like Chinese barbecue pork and so forth? Who's, it's a nice little challenge. And so um, part of that, and it's also lighting. Um, when I did the restaurant, we put one third of the budget into lighting. And um, the first time when we took over a restaurant and we were redoing it, I used pink light bulbs so everyone looked rosy and beautiful and it was lit really well. <laughs> and it makes you really comfortable because you're gonna be sitting there for three hours for a lengthy dinner and good conversation, hopefully. So um, I always use candlelight and um, I will tell you, I was in, in the restaurant usually by 10 in the morning and uh, went home and changed for dinner service because sometimes I had a customer that came during lunch and dinner. So I changed into evening clothes and I saw my son for about an hour. And um, then um, on Sundays was the only day with him. And so I had him set the table and we always had candlelight. 
And so when he's with his nanny on the terrace for dinner, there's candlelight and setting the table. And you set the mood. And um, it feels festive and special and it's, you're winding down the day. And it's another thing that I learned from a friend when I was in the fashion business, I was asked to uh, go into business with her. So we were working from home. And, um, you know, as we all have cycles in our life, sometimes you lose your job and you, um, you know, are looking for a new job. So in between, you know, uh, you um, have to watch, you know, what uh, monies you're spending. So she said to you, to me, always cook for yourself, always do a lovely meal, have candlelight and use your best china. And so it's a festive moment for yourself. So you honor yourself and it's self-care. Yeah. And you extend that to other people when you know the pocket becomes full again, you extend, you extend that to your friends and family. And also to strangers, it's a, a way to connect. It's, um, it's neutral grounds. Wine and food is very neutral and it goes around the world. And it's really telling too, what people choose. <laughs> yes, yes. I think um, setting the table for yourself, particularly as we were living through that pandemic period, mm -hmm. was really good practice of self-care. Yeah, make it a festive moment. Yeah. Well, Janet, what is coming up next for you? Um, do you want any, anything our listeners should know? Especially well, about your um, virtual wine tastings. Tell us more oh, about that. You know, a friend, uh, a friend had asked me, uh, he lived in a condominium and he's one of my wine buddies. And so he says, oh, do you think you could do a wine tasting via Zoom? I said, sure, no problem. And uh, what happened was I called up certain wine stores, especially ones owned by women independent wine stores to help support them as well. And uh, also food. And so we had food and wine pairings delivered, uh, 47 of them. And the good news is that people still want to do this because, oh, we don't have to drink and drive. <laughs> and <laughs> That's the point. All and, right. <laughs> and now you can have other people there and they're always curious to see what I'm going to pair because I paired it with Asian food, Western wines, European wines, and just to help support, you know, what was going on in racism in this country and with the, in quote, the Wuhan virus. And um, I've done the classic cheeses, both American, um, which makes some fabulous cheeses, especially in Vermont, as well as the classic French, and then there's the Italian and the Spanish cheeses. And um, food from other areas. Um, I'm anxious to do one with empanadas so they could yes. reheat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And oh, there's one place, Unwind. Um, she has a chef who makes gougere, those wonderful oh. little cheese puffs. And you could just pop them in the oven before you start the tasting with me. <laughs> and so I'm starting to do live events, but um, uh, Junior League asked me to do one. So I did the best of Trader Joe's and why. Um, I've done one in live for um, an international law firm. And so it was the rare and the wonderful. Um, and uh, also I've done some that compare um, the same wine. So let's say uh, there's a bottle of champagne and it's the same wine and it, they'll, they'll bottle it as a magnum 
a 750 your standard size and then a 375 and uh, we discuss how it changes with the volume and what it tastes like and I myself have never attended a tasting of that and I don't know anyone who's uh, actually done it and so um, the group was really astounded how different it was and uh the wine was great value that came from Calvert Woodley. They had it on sale during the holidays. And I said, you could, you know, call up people to join you or you could use a champagne corker because if properly stored, it'll last you if you could get through the week without drinking it up. <laughs> yeah, that's the trick. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people connect with you? You want to give us your social media handles? Um, yeah. I'm most active on Instagram. In fact, I have more material that I have time to post. I mean, technically I'm a little bit weak. So if anyone wants to be an assistant, I am open. <laughs> um, so there's Instagram, uh, which is Janet Cam and the number eight. Uh, Twitter is Cam Janet. And then there's Facebook. I have two. The professional one is Janet L Cam. And then the personal one is Janet Cam. But um, much like Julia, I'm totally open. So Julia used to leave her phone number for people to call her, and they did. Um, so my email is Janet at JanetCam.com, and that's J-A-N-E-T-C-A-M.com. Yeah, they include that in the series, too. Yeah. Which is really kind of funny. But <laughs> if anyone knew about Julia, they knew that that's, that was her And that I can her thing. I can testify it's a great Instagram account because I'm a follower. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Janet, that brings us to our lightning round where we ask all of our guests four questions related to the theme of the podcast of historical drama as a window to the past and a mirror of the present. Um, we did tweak maybe a couple of things because we knew we were talking with you and because of your vast experience and knowledge of food and wine, uh, but the first question is pretty much the standard one. And that is, if you could travel back in time, where would you take yourself and why? China Ming Dynasty. And that's around um, the 1600s. Because as an American, I studied, um, you know, Western culture, European history, and uh, the, the food of the palace. Uh, was amazing of what little I've read and known. And I don't read Chinese, so I'm really in the dark about that one. But um, it was primarily fruits and vegetables. And um, meat was a condiment. And you, so the meats you had were like squab, partridge, chickens. And um, they did several courses, like maybe 36, and they were never repeated. And so when you look at European history, um, it's much the same that there was an abundance of food, you know, at the French court. And you had the peacocks roasted with their feathers on. Um, and it was the show. And um, maybe you tasted one or two, but it was the abundance at the table. So I'm curious to learn more about my own culture. 
Yeah. And um, there was a book that I had uh, read with Le Dame de Scofia, our group here. Um, and it was the last Chinese chef. And there was a dish in there that was um, fish balls. They were like little mousseline, so they were like little canals. My parents had a caretaker in Los Angeles and this woman made that dish. I'd never seen it anywhere. It was like ethereal, uh, the purity of the broth and this fish ball. And the first time I ever read about it was in that book. And apparently it's an imperial court dish. Mm. I read that book too. I Someone did too. recommended it oh. to me. I love it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. great. <laughs> My mouth is watering here. Um, next question. If you were to create a dinner with characters from historical fiction or drama, who would be at your table? The rat Tatooine. <laughs> 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 For one, let's have a good gig on a laugh and that energy spinning around. Um, and, and I then, guess you'll be there all by yourself with the rat. Hiding <laughs> <laughs> under the hat, you know, and the magic of the dish appears. Um, the other is a uh, master chew. So eat, drink, man, woman. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, that was such a great film. And how I saw that film was um, when I was living in LA, I luckily fell into a pretty snazzy wine group of guys. And uh, so uh, these guys were in the music and movie business. So Cy Litvinov was the producer of Clockwork Orange. He says, I want you to go to this film with me so you could tell me because he had to vote. And so that was the film. So I told him, the secrets of the food. And I knew what the story was before the ending came. And I told him why. And so um, Master Chu, I mean, that knife action and the fish, I want to learn that. <laughs> so, and then there's Babette's Feast. Yes. I mean, you talk about love and community. Oh, yes. This austerity and suddenly the whole world opens up at the table. And that's, I think that's the essence of a great dinner party. Yes. Yes. So what three items would you include in a time capsule that represents the times you've lived through? <laughs> a Coravan. <laughs> For those who don't know, this is uh, an invention where you could put this needle into the bottle and just pour a little bit of wine out and not happen to uncork it and you can still keep the wine. So you could also see if the wine's ready to drink, but you, you do need to drink it within a year because there's this little bitty hole that's gonna age that wine. So the Coravan's one of them. Oh gosh, you know, in the times I've lived in, oh, let me see. Denim, the evolution of denim. Um, I was at that time where um, it started to be fashionable. And so you saw Ralph Lauren and the denim on the street. Um, Gloria Vanderbilt had you know, done this, Halston was doing it and um, how they changed denim. So I'm wearing in fact, you know, something that references sort of like a tissue weight of what that might've been. And also designing jeans without a side seam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Denim would be one of them, and that's all American. And God, we need food in there. Gougere, noodles, noodles would be it. So, you know, from the ancient tombs of China and the first noodle, which was extruded through a horns, through an ox horn, 
that was done with meat juices, I think that maybe we could have a package of dried noodles like a ramen or something because it's become universal throughout the world. Yes, yes. And it's funny you mentioned the ox. I was just talking to my mother recently. Uh, we were saying oxtails used to be what, what we call trash food because it, you know people threw it away. Now you can't even afford them. Yeah. <laughs> I poor mean, people so didn't expensive. throw them away. <laughs> yeah, poor people didn't. <laughs> so, um, so our final question in the lightning round is, and you just mentioned some historical dramas like Babette's Feast, for example. Do you see these historical dramas as a window to the past or a mirror of the present day? And that includes Julia. I think it's a mirror of the heart. Mm. You know, love that. that's what that really is. Mm. And that's timeless. And that's the soul and that's the spirit. It's almost spiritual. And it's really interesting to taste food that's made with love. And the first time I heard that was um, when I was at Lutes doing the turnaround of that. There was a fellow who was a, a jazz saxophone player and he was starting Chow Hound. And oh, yeah. yeah, which recently closed, he had sold it, but he's the first one who talked about food made with love. And so when I closed up Lutes at the end of the evening, we would jump into his car and then go to these places like where the Egyptian taxi cab drivers cooked and his mom was coming to visit and she'll be cooking for a couple of months. And then there was this woman who was on the street making um, arepas that he would talk about oh. made with love. So that's what I think about. Beautiful. You know, there is the other aspects of, you know, how great cuisine can be. And there were two women chefs that I think are pretty special. Um, one is Thai, her name's Pim. Oh yes. Yeah, yes. so Pim, I had been to her restaurant in San Francisco and I marvel at the technique and finesse that she's recreated this food and for her to take over Nam, which I stumbled on in Thailand and Bangkok when it was still David Thompson. And it's an Australian who hired people in the kitchen who were Thai who read the books of the dead because that's how the recipes were transferred. And so for her to go back and take a Michelin restaurant and to be Thai and a woman chef, how amazing is that? And then um, I think what is involved a lot and, and with Julia as well is discipline, uh, perseverance and a palate. And uh, the other person I would like to uh, mention is uh, Dominique Crenn. So she is the first uh, woman chef in America to have a Michelin three-star. And I've been there and I couldn't get into Atelier Crenn. So I went to the lesser one and I am sitting there at the counter watching her, watching her people cook with fire. It was pitch perfect. So that's a test. Uh, what a chef does is really an esprit de corps. You get people to reproduce your vision because you can't put out every dish yourself. Right. And I so admire that. And, um, you know, the people of uh, the west part of France and Brittany, and it so happens, is where uh, my ex-husband's from as well as Finisterre in, in that region. Uh, there's a discipline and almost an, uh, a focus, an austere focus onto uh, the food. And it, all that passion comes out in the food. But to get there, you have to have that discipline and perseverance and vision of knowing what you want to achieve. Yeah. Well, Janet, love. Janet, not only have you given us such a wonderful volume of what 
we need to pay attention to enjoy and the history of food, but you've made us extremely hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, after this, I guess we'll be going back into the kitchen and looking in, in the refrigerator and see what we could, what we could cook up. So Thank you so much for joining us on Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters to talk about the HBO Max series, Julia, inspired by Julia Child's life and her public television cooking series, The French Chef. It is now available, as I mentioned before, on HBO Max. To our listeners, thank you for joining this podcast. Look for Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters on Instagram and Facebook and visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and additional resources related to this conversation. Join us again, like and share the historical drama with the Boston Sisters podcast on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. Bon appetit. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.